Hello and welcome back to Scottish Independence Podcasts. This week we've it's Gordon McIntyre Kemp explaining what a well-being economy is. This comes from the AGM of the group Yes for EU, and we're very grateful to them for sharing it with us. You can watch the original on their YouTube channel, and we'll link to that below. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me to come through this evening. Um, what I'm going to talk about uh, just now is uh, a couple of things. First of all, I'm going to take you through some uh, research that we've done. It's, it's a funny thing, though, because uh, prior to 2014, when people found out I was an economist at parties, you could see the blood draining out of their face and they start walking backwards, looking for a way out, etc. Everybody seemed to have a weak bladder. They'd go, oh, really? I have to go to the loo. So, uh, but since 2014, uh, basically, you say you're an economist and everyone goes, oh, that's fascinating. Tell me about this. And should we have our own currency? And should we, you know, and people don't realize that there's all sorts of different economists uh, and with different expertises, etc. But uh, I'm going to share some of the data uh, that we've done, also some work we're doing on policy work, uh, which we're presenting to the Scottish Government on the wellbeing economy. Uh, but I want to start off because this is uh, a Yes for EU meeting with some polling we've done on uh, Scotland as an independent nation rejoining uh, the EU. Just a quick poll around the room, though. How many of you uh, believe that Scotland should be an independent nation? Right, so there aren't any undecided yet, and that's because we're not in campaign mode, so that's fair enough. Uh, so this is uh, uh, not preaching to the converted, but hopefully sharing some knowledge with the people that are going to go out there and talk to the undecideds. How many of you want Scotland definitely to rejoin the EU once it's an independent nation? Is there anyone who doesn't or isn't sure? No? Okay. But uh, so yeah, we did a poll here. This one is 2006 people. In February this year, 68% of the population of Scotland said that an independent Scotland should rejoin the EU. And that is a super majority right there. Only 32% know. I suspect it's going in one direction only, uh, that stat. So we'll do that, that piece of work uh, again. So you can see how important it is to people in Scotland to think of ourselves not as an insular nationalistic nation, although we happen, I think, to be part of an insular na nationalistic nation called Great Britain or the United Kingdom, uh, but as a civic international nation who wants to reach out and join the European family of nations, independent nations all around the world. In terms of uh, how that breaks down, there was a majority for an independent Scotland rejoining the EU from every single age group, even the age groups that you might say in terms of females over 55 and males over 55, they were both 52%. Uh, those are the age groups that don't necessarily support Scottish independence. But we'll talk about how to make them support independence later on. But they do support already uh, rejoining the EU. Uh, for younger males and females, there is a super majority. It's not even worth talking about. One of the keys to that is what people think will happen to Scotland's economy if, as an independent nation, we rejoin the EU. Now, remember that in 2014, the scaremongering of the no camp was all about, uh, oh, the danger to your economy. And that worked for a lot of people, largely because I didn't think the Yes campaign had a really positive, strong vision. Uh, it had a big sort of doorstopper of a manifesto called Scotland's Future. Uh, how many of you read the whole of Scotland's Future? Two of you. I don't. Three, four. I'm not sure if I believe you or not. It's literally my job to read that, and I didn't. So, so what we need to do is we need to share a vision 
And part of the vision we will share this time is that we will rejoin the EU as an independent nation. It appeals to absolutely everyone. It's also the right thing to do for our communities, for our exporters, and for our economy overall. It's also just the right thing to do, to be part of the European family of nations at this point in history. It's the right thing to do. Um, and that's kind of what the UK as a whole hasn't got. But here's basically why it's, it's so important to people. A much more people... 45% uh, of people think that the economy will be better or much better, and 16% think no difference. So what's that? 61% of people think that the economy will not be worse if we become independent and rejoin the EU. Again, that's a big number. Once you start getting a six in front of a, of a poll, you know that the argument's over. You can never convince everybody. And this is the thing, that once we become independent, you won't find somebody who voted no. You might if they're driving to the border in a, in a truck with all their furniture, but that'll be very few people. <laughs> that'll be like four or five people, they'll be, and they'll, they'll be ex-conservative MPs. Um, but yeah, so, so basically the economic argument for independence is one, but it's even stronger when you talk about rejoining the EU. Um, in February uh, this year, we held the first Scottish Independence Congress. And at that Congress, we had 241 delegates from, I think, 130, 130, no, 126 uh, affiliated local yes groups and national yes groups. We've now got 141, 10 national campaigns like Yes for EU, NHS for Yes, etc., and uh, Christians for, for Independence, etc. Uh, but we've also uh, got 131 local groups who are campaigning with our materials, uh, with the Believe in Scotland uh, leaflets, etc. One of which is this one here, which quite simply just makes the case for an independent Scotland rejoining the EU, which we think is an absolutely core message. So basically, we held, we polled uh, all of the leaders of the affiliated groups, which is about I'm going to guess 90-95% of all active yes groups in Scotland and 80% of them say that an independent Scotland should rejoin the EU. And a further 15%, so that takes it 95, overall wanted to, to go down the EFTA route. I find it really easy to explain to people why we should rejoin the EU rather than EFTA. What I do is I say to them, go speak to, go knock five or six doors, knock on the door and say you want to join EFTA and see what happens. By the time you hit the sixth door, you're going, we're going to rejoin the EU because people understand that. But also, it is the better option, much, much stronger. EFTA could well be a plan B, but it isn't the right option for Scotland. And 1.5% no, which uh, a quick calculation is, what's that of 241? Just over three people, I think, uh, said no on that one. And I was actually talking about this, and I said, I have to find out who these people are. I don't know who they are. Who has it said no, we don't want to have anything to do with Europe EFTA or, or EU, etc. And as I was doing this Zoom, I just saw someone put their hand up, and they went, I was one of them that, that said no. And I went, oh, right. I said, this will actually be really interesting for me. What was it that made you say no? And they went, I clicked the wrong button. So I think that 1.5 is, is overestimating it a little bit. It was, it was really interesting learning. We've learned to make the survey easier to use. Uh, but we did another poll. This was actually 2021, but it's still relevant. We're about to redo this. This is a really big poll of uh, 3,276 independent supporters. Obviously, we can poll them easily uh, without using uh, a company uh, because we have... Um, hundreds of thousands of followers via social media. We've got two pages with well over 100,000 followers each. 
uh, using different brands, etc. So we've put this poll out there, and amongst the, the, the 3,200, we've got 200 yes, sorry, no to yes switchers. And we asked them, what were the main reasons? Uh, and you might, it might be interesting to notice that only 5% uh, there actually said that it was because of Nicola Sturgeon, because the talk was the reason that, that actual independence had jumped uh, in the polls at that time was because of the leadership of Nicola Sturgeon. Well, it, it had an impact, but no, Brexit was the reason that 60% of no to yes switches exist. And when we asked them, would you want EFTA in a different poll, those, or a different question, I should say, only 40% uh, would have accepted that to, to keep them as, as, as a yes voter. So as you can see, the EU from our polling has become incredibly important. And that's, that's not the reason that I actually led the business case for staying in the EU. Uh, I led the business case for staying in the EU during the referendum because I knew that Brexit was going to be disastrous. And we've just had 16 months of falling ex exports in a row. You know, I mean, that is Armageddon to to uh, exporting companies. I've met several people who run companies throughout Scotland who have struggled. One or two have even gone bust as a direct result of Brexit. Um, and that's just not acceptable when we voted wholeheartedly to remain in the European Union. Scotianomics is the name of the think tank that span out of uh, Business for Scotland Limited. I should say Business for Scotland Limited is the company. It runs Business for Scotland, the business network, one of the most influential business networks and lobbying firms in Scotland, I guess. And we do annual dinners, salt our lunches uh, every month to talk about Scotland's politics, etc. We also run a campaign called Believe in Scotland. So Believe in Scotland isn't an organisation, it's a campaign run by Business for Scotland. If there's a referendum, it'll become an organisation, right? Uh, Scotianomics is the think tank, so there's three elements to the business. Uh, and Scotianomics does all the research. We have eight staff in total, six of them are full-time. So a reasonable size uh, organization. Well, the first thing we did, we, to tell you a, wee, a quick wee story, we, we were actually doing a video in 2014 and we pointed the camera at all the business people that we had, or a bunch of business people we had that were members, and we said to them, just say very quickly, one or two words, why you want independence? And they said, uh, equality, shared prosperity, the real living wage. And I was like, cut, 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 we're a business group. We don't even sound even remotely like the CBI. <laughs> and then I went, ah, isn't it strange that independent supporting business people have radically different ideas? And it's not because they were socialists or something like that. It's because they realize that if 20% of your population is non-economically active because they, even though they work holding down two jobs, they can't even afford to put the heating on in the winter, well, they're not contributing to the economy. You know, so that's why we, we started thinking that way. So we started uh, investigating how we might do things differently, what the economic prospectus for independence for another referendum would be. And well-being uh, is something that we're all, uh, well-being economics is something that we're really all involved with and doing a lot of research into. So we looked around the world and we said, right, there's the New Zealand well-being budget, I guess. There's, there's you know, Wales has done some stuff, Iceland, etc. This is going to be easy. Let's go and have a look. And all we found was tick box exercises. All we found was people put the word well-being beside a policy and, and it wasn't thought out. There wasn't an overarching meaning to this. And that's why some people say it's a buzzword. So we thought, well, if we're going to reinvent the economy, where do we start? Well, let's start with the core values of the population. Does the current economy match the core values of the population? And we found out that it absolutely does not. We did this piece of work. We did it in England and in Scotland uh, in September 2020. 
looking at uh, public attitudes to, to well-being economics in Scotland, the work has been done since, but it's been done in partnership with other people and by other people. So I'm going to share the, the public version of it just now. It has been updated more recently and focus groups have been held on it. And everything I'm going to tell you tonight, even though it's from 2020, holds true in every piece of research since. We, we identified 21 values. And of those values, one of the overall statements, and it's actually, if you think about it, a fairly radical statement, because this is not the way we run our economy right now. We asked people, quality of life, equality, fairness, and happiness, and health are all economic outcomes that should be given equal weight in planning to economic growth, to GDP growth, right? So we thought, that's a fairly radical statement. Who's going to go for that? And we found there was a 78% majority of people said, yeah, I believe in that statement. Now, right there, you can instantaneously tell that that does not describe the mantra of the UK's economic system, does it? No. So the economic system of the UK does not match the core values of the people of the UK. I'm not going to go into detail. However, you didn't get results like this at 78% when we surveyed people in England. And that's the difference. That's why you have a broad church mixed palette of left and right policies, SNP, stroke Green government in Scotland, and a Tory government in England, and a red Tory government maybe about to win the next election. And that just, you know, five or six percentage on every single question is the reason we have different governments. And it's, it's quite telling. But also, look there, the undecided are there uh, as well. So we haven't taken them out in any of these figures. So you can, uh, you can take that to 86% uh, if you take the undecided out. So basically, there's a mismatch between values and economy. And if you break it down, it's not just, it's not just SNP and, and maybe Labour, as you might think. Uh, right across the board, there are majorities. The Conservatives, even at 52%, there was a majority, even with the undecided left in, there was a majority of Conservatives agreed with these sort of statements. This one was, if we can build society and our economy more successfully after coronavirus, we can create a new economic approach that will allow both our economy and society to thrive and be more resilient. Right across the board, we can't tell the difference. This is something that the, uh, the chief executive panel base or the director of panel base that I was talking to about this, he said, I've looked at the data and I can't tell the difference between SNP voters and Labour voters on any single question. He said, Gordon, are they the exact same people? And I said, yeah, they just differ on independence, and that's pretty much it. Um, and that's a very telling strategy for independence. It's, also, it's obviously where the growth came last time. It's also where the growth will come uh, this time. The Liberal Democrats at 74% agreeing, yeah, but there just aren't that many of them. Attitudes towards economic success being more equally shared among society would result in better, better, growth, better growth, split by age, that actually there's a majority in every age group as well. But notice... More, even more so than in the EU, older folks buy into the well-being argument even more than they do the EU argument. Right? So we did a bit of work. Well, I did this bit of work in 2017 where I tried to actually understand what is the well-being economy. We'd mapped out what the values were. We then looked at the different things that we might be able to measure in different countries. And I started a bit of work to compare Denmark, which at the time was the happiest nation in the world, uh, with the UK. But also Denmark is uh, one of the, the closest two or three nations to Scotland geographically with the same population. Uh, you know, the others are, are Finland uh, and uh, Ireland and Norway. So I looked at Denmark and 
if you assume that if you're calculating all the different things that that have to be given the same prominence in your policy making as GDP, Denmark beats the UK on almost everything except sustainability and natural resources. Guess what happens if Scotland leaves the UK? Yeah, that's Scotland, right? So the UK is losing on everything except for economic performance. And I remember at the time, uh, people would say, ah, yeah, but your, your whole theory just falls apart there because the UK's economy is growing faster than Denmark's. And I said, yeah, but if I'm right, the UK economy is going to collapse and Denmark's is going to continue growing steadily at the rate it's at. That's exactly what happened. You cannot grow an economy in a sustainable manner unless you have all the factors of society and the economy working together. You cannot have a strong society without a strong economy, and you cannot have a strong economy without a strong society. The two sides of the same coin. And what have we done all of our lives here? If we, if, if we think about what's happened in my lifetime, well, say we start off with the Conservatives in government and the Conservatives are cutting red tape and, and negotiating or not negotiating with the unions or strikes, etc., and keeping the pay low, etc., and business starts to boom for a short period and but society starts to die. Uh, and eventually, everybody goes, oh, stuff this. And we swing the pendulum all the way to the left and we bring in labour. And labour start increasing Pensions would increase, spending would increase, benefits would increase, etc. And the economy would start to die. So what do we do five, ten years later? But it's about ten years later when the Tories get in, it's five years later when the Labour get in, usually, usually, until Labour became the Tories. Then they managed to stay for quite a few years. And uh, they're trying that trick again. Uh, so we swing the pendulum backwards and forwards, expecting something different to happen, expecting boom and bust to stop. You know, there is a saying, isn't there, about doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome? And so basically that's what's been happening in the UK. We haven't understood that it's a holistic solution, not a left and right, or even a liberal middle do nothing sort of solution. It's a left and right in harmony because every single one of you holds, even if you classify yourself as a socialist, you hold right-wing ideas on business and economy simultaneously as you hold socialist ideas on society in your head. Almost our research says that everyone thinks that way and yet politicians try to put us in a box to force us to vote for them rather than the other people. You need the best ideas of both to be simultaneously in order. What if that's the only way you can actually sustainably grow economy? To actually have a society that's thriving, which means you can't just have business uh, policies. Everybody beats the UK on absolutely everything except for environmental quality. And again, take Wales and Scotland out, environmental quality drops uh, like a stone. So, you know, the, 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 if the theory holds, then the future of the UK is extremely bleak. Also, uh, happiness, etc. Uh, all these other nations are uh, significantly uh, stronger. And uh, economy, we have internationalisation in the economy. And that's one of the reasons that the economy has dropped so much as well uh, since Brexit. Quite a few people have uh, been moaning for the last few years about something called the Sustainable Growth Commission. A Sustainable Growth Commission, uh, Business for Scotland met with them several times uh, and we gave them lots of ideas. We gave them a lot of the ideas that I'm going to talk about tonight and uh, not one single one got into the Sustainable Growth Commission. Uh, we felt as if we'd wasted our time. But we plugged on with our ideas and it started to, to grow. We started to, to 
share our research and our research started to turn heads. We're sharing, talking, talking through, uh, especially during the, the lockdown, um, the data sets that we had. And that really started to make a difference. And Nicola Sturgeon at our annual dinner uh, this year, before she resigned in, in January, I think it was. I can't remember when. No, no, my, my annual dinner was in January, I think. Yeah, so I think it was January, yeah. Uh, she said the research on wellbeing economics done by Business for Scotland has been leading the agenda in our government. And I thought, wow. Then she resigned. First time she said anything nice about us, then she goes. But the thing is, Hamza Youssef is, and the Greens as well as part of government are fully committed to this. Even more so, even more committed to this. We now have a wellbeing economy secretary. If you want to know what I think was the turning point, Believe in Scotland teamed up with the National, the National Yes Network, uh, and the SNP, and the Greens even, to put a million copies of a newspaper out, which made the case for a well-being economics, right? So if you're still thinking, oh, the Sustainable Growth Commission is still lurking in the background, that killed it. The SNP committed to their activists putting out a million newspapers. As we did this, and there wasn't really much else happening at the time, uh, support for independence went to, I think it was about 55% in some polls, about 53 to 54 was where it was kind of sticking. And then as soon as we finished doing that, Alex and Nicola started giving evidence against one another, right, back down to 47 in, in most polls. But it's a 53 in one poll now, so I guess we're looking at 50-50. But this was basically um, uh, exercise in killing the Sustainable Growth Commission. I'm forgetting this is getting broadcast. I hope Andrew Wilson's not watching this. Amongst other things, there are different things you can do. There's lots of different policies, and we can talk about these policies uh, and, and the ideas that, 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 that would come within well-being. But essentially, uh, one, of, one of the ones that we've actually championed is the Benefit Corporation Tax Credit System. This was a system to actually uh, redo corporation tax. You know how many companies make £100 million profit in this country, and then they get a bill for £99 million from their Swiss uh, headquarters for use of the colour brown in their logo and all the money goes over there and they only pay 10% etc. So the UK government was forcing down or planning to actually reduce corporation tax. They found they maybe can't afford to do what they wanted to do uh, in the past. But so we came up with a scheme where we'd actually raise corporation tax. Sharp intake of breath from anybody uh, in a big PLC at the moment at this moment in time. Uh, but what we'll then do is we'll say yeah but if your organisation is a benefit to the well to Scotland's well-being. If you're part a well-being economy corporation, you can get credits, tax credits, well-being tax credits. If you have equality in your pay, uh, if you have uh, equality on your board, if you increase the amount of your turnover you spend on close to market research and development, if you increase your exports, if you reduce your carbon footprint, if you take people off of unemployment and employ people and train people, if you have apprenticeships, etc. All of these things that you do pay the real living wage. All of these things you do give you tax credits, and you'll end up paying less corporation tax than your headquarters in England does, right? But how can we afford to do that? How do we get less corporation tax? Well, it's actually uh, better for them to pay corporation tax here than it is to pay several million pounds to a firm of accountants to make sure they don't pay corporation tax. And the other thing is that the Scottish Benefits Bill will drop because we're paying literally hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds every year in universal credits to the staff at Tesco and Asda because they don't get paid enough in Amazon, right? If the government has to give benefits to people in full-time jobs, you don't have an economy and you shouldn't be giving shareholders bonuses.
That's a well-being fact, right? We've also done some work, which is, uh, this is a, a piece of work, which is an advanced copy, which means that right now we've just done this work. It's the, it's the draft, basically, and we've given it to quite a few uh, economists and academics. They're looking at it, uh, and they're working with us on defining this. So basically, we're taking the def definition model that to the next level, and uh, we've basically come up with, uh, under each of these headings, economy, human development, living environment, future-proofing and, and community, we've come up with uh, about half a dozen measures that we can easily find for most of the countries in the world. We can't find them for Scotland because Scotland's not an independent nation. We don't collect that data for Scotland, which is a bit of a problem. But we can create a league, but this league basically takes 33 nations, uh, mostly OECD countries, and grades them across these multiple factors. And we can actually see who is doing well in each area and what the best uh, countries are for well-being. Can anyone just give us a shout out and tell me what you see in terms of a trend of the top 10 well-being economies in the world? I'll take about our size, but I'm not taking small <laughs> because Scotland is an average-sized country. Liechtenstein's small. Iceland's small. We're very average. I know it's a bad thing to be average, but we're very average. We're kind of medium-sized country. But yes, they're small, mostly Northern European, independent nations of similar population sizes to Scotland or smaller, with the exception of Germany. And I'll tell you something about Germany. It's, it's the, uh, the UK was 16th, I think. Just check that. 16th, fifth largest country in the world with all the advantages that the UK has got, and it's 16th in well-being. I think that's an absolute disgrace given how many countries don't have any of those advantages and are, and are above it. And we're going down uh, the list. Germany is the large country that's there. Germany is very different in terms of well-being uh, to us. Amongst other things, one of the, the key things about a well-being economy is subsidiarity. You actually would have local decision-making, democratic budgeting. So every area of the city here, Edinburgh, uh, would have a percentage of the council's budget that would be spent doing the parks up the streets, etc. And instead of the council deciding, they put it in a, in, a, in a pot for local communities to actually have a democratic process of deciding how the money's best spent. That is, Paris are using it. So why can't Edinburgh? It's been used around the world to great effect. And it, but instead of centralizing in London, or if you for, take a better example, is there are people living on islands whose bus stop decision as to where the bus stop is being positioned has been made in Inverness three hours away in four ferries you know so local decision making is part of it germany the average size of a german council is six thousand people average size of a scottish council hundred and sixty thousand people yeah so councils don't you know birmingham city council was was a few years ago uh, europe's largest employer nobody else does it that way yeah you don't you don't have tens of thousands of staff and if you want to speak to somebody who can make a decision about your local park or your local library your local swimming pool you just wander down a few doors and knock you know everybody else seems to run their countries along those lines and also the thing about germany is that although you think of germany and you think of german and, and, and industrialism etc you think of the big car companies and yeah they have some mega car companies it's a big country of course they have some mega car companies but the vast majority of the German economy is driven by something that's known as the Mittelstadt, 
The Mittelstad is the small to medium-sized family-run businesses, many of them sixth, seventh generation businesses. And they almost all have unions on the board. And the gap between the salaries of the owners and the salaries of the shopful workers is much smaller. There is a difference between Germany and other large countries, certainly with, with the UK. Another policy is the uh, well-being pension. Uh, you may have given out some of these leaflets at 225. Uh, well, we've just had the, the April 1st uplift and we've re-evaluated as well. Just like the real living wage, we update the, living, uh, the well-being pension every year. Uh, and now we figure out that, and this isn't for wealthy pensioners, this is just the minimum amount you need per week just to survive, to be able to feed and clothe yourself and put the heat on when it's cold. And it's 235. Uh, per week. The new pension is 203 per week. So it's significantly short. That's the new state pension, which is if you retired after the 1st of April 2019. And the um, old state pension, which still 80% of people get, am I right in thinking, is 157? But it's, it's well short. So basic, basically, there's a massive gap between what it costs to live and what the state pension gives people. And this is based on 225, because we haven't actually recalculated this yet. But the amount required to increase the uh, minimum wage to the, hit the real living wage, you need to give a 6.25% increase. The amount that the old pension or minimum pension would need is 41% increase. That's how short they are of being able to live with dignity. And interestingly enough, when we asked, that's one of the questions where there wasn't a majority of, of conservative voters. We said, should the state pension in the UK be enough to be able to afford to just live with dignity as a right rather than something that you've earned? And I think only 48% of Conservative voters said yes to that. So only 48% of Conservative voters think that you should be allowed to live with dignity if all your only income is the state pension. Right? I think that is quite telling. Uh, but even the new state pension needs, needed to rise 23%. We'll update that soon. Uh, so we said to people uh, in the same poll in February, should Scotland be an independent country? 48% yes to 52%. That was probably at the low. 48% now seems hardwired in, if you noticed that in the polls. Almost never goes below 48 now. And that's basically with 50-50 uh, within the, the, the threshold of a, of a sample. So we did a 2006 sample, so it was quite a big poll. So that should be fairly accurate. So we asked, we asked those people, it was panel-based, did the survey for us. Uh, should Scotland be an independent country? 48%. Same people, we asked them, if the Scottish Government were, if there was a referendum tomorrow and the Scottish Government had put as the main economic case a well-being approach that gave equal precedence and decision-making to well-being, health, happiness, sustainability, uh, as it does to GDP, all the things we've talked about before, how would you vote? And it jumps to 56%. These are the same people reading one sentence. And we've done this in uh, discussion groups and we've done it in Focus groups. The key thing that people say to us is, but that's not what the SNP are telling us independence is all about. Why aren't they saying that? Well, they are. They've just changed the economy minister to the well-being economy minister, and they're saying exactly this, right? And they're talking to us almost every day, right? So, and that's 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 an important change, a massively important change. So you get an eight percent uplift in support for independence just by saying. And we're going to have a well-being economy because they don't believe you can have it. Labour are saying it. We're not finding anyone believing Labour are going to do it. 
The Scottish independence uh, uh, referendum voting with a well-being economic approach. There are increases right across the board. Um, this is one that initially really worried me. I thought uh, a well-being economic approach and also the increase in young females for the pension made me worry that young females in Scotland were actually really worried about their future already when you're only 16 to 34. Um, but then we started talking to them. We started uh, in the focus groups, et cetera. And it turns out they just care about people's rights. They just care about human rights. They want a fair society. They're not actually worried about themselves. And that was really quite interesting to see. And But you can see that, again, 6% more likely if you're a female, 3% more likely if you're male. I think that's mainly because there's more males already voting independence in that age bracket. Uh, but that's an interesting uh, factor. In terms of... Uh, where you're likely to get converts with this approach. Lib Dems are much more likely to vote for independence. Uh, with, as I say, that's, that's a good number, but it's, uh, there aren't that many Lib Dems. The big one is Labour. There's a lot of Labour voters there. 2%. This is, this is, there's always been about 4% of SNP voters don't want independence. And if you're, if you're confused by that, it's because they're Tories. They usually live in Angus, Moray and Perth. Uh, and they... Uh, don't want independence, but they really don't want Westminster running and making decisions for Scotland either. You can have some very interesting conversations with them. And, uh, you know, it just goes to show that the hardest anti-independence vote still moves because they also believe in this approach. But 11% uh, more likely Labour. So we said Scottish independence with a well-being economic approach and a well-being pension of two to five a week. And we get 60% yes. The same people that were 48%. The minute you explain these things to them, they switch. Well, if somebody told me that's what independence was about, I'd have voted yes in 2014. You know, that's what we were saying, it just wasn't what the yes campaign were saying. In terms of uh, where the vote comes there, well, because of the pension element, you see a 15% increase in females over 55, and you, that doubles, that's a 100% increase on once you add the pensions in uh, there as well. And so what you actually find with this uh, approach is, I was going to say, you can see a 21% more likely Labour uh, to switch to independence with a well-being economic approach. In other words, Labour will believe that, that a Scottish independent Scotland will deliver what is nothing more than a soundbite to UK Labour. Because they're saying one thing, and quite clearly, then the next day turning around and giving an interview to the right-wing press and saying something completely different. You, know, you can't say we're going to implement a well-being economy and then turn around to the press the next day and say, we're more Tory than the Tories. I think it's actually a quote, isn't it? That's pretty much what he said, what Stammer said. Uh, but 21% more likely Labour. So to finish off with, what I want to say here is that if we join the EU after independence, if we say we're going to join the EU after independence, if we say we'll protect the NHS, which we obviously will because it's a major part of the well-being economic approach, if we lead with a well-being economic approach and we start to use the powers that we have right now in Scotland to start putting these things in place, and there are one or two things we can do, you just need to classify something as a, a, as a heating policy rather than an energy policy, as someone pointed out to me the other day. I love these conversations, these events here. Someone says, you could do this, and I go, can you? Right, that's interesting, and go and look. And quite often people are right, so it's useful. But if we do those things, then we will win independence with a super majority. And that's what we don't need to do, but it's what will make life very easy when it comes to the transition. 
A well-being economic approach will also ensure that Scotland thrives, that we can eradicate poverty, and that our businesses and our communities will work in unison to help us build a better, happier, healthier, fairer nation. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Gordon. That was uh, that was really fantastic. Thanks. Um, yes, um, we want to throw the floor open to questions now. Gordon, thank you very much for that talk. It was very interesting. Um, from the point of view of explaining when you are campaigning the well-being economic approach, it's a jargon <laughs> term that people are not going to be familiar with. Can you give us a, a, a fairly brief and shortish list of what the sub areas are within the overall well-being economic approach in terms of uh, subheadings we've actually got a leaflet and i don't think i've got one has anyone got a well-being leaflet with them we did have a pop-up stand that had exactly that answer on there but it broke uh, but yeah basically it is if i can go back to if i've understood the question correctly let me just quality of life equality fairness happiness and health are all and sustainability are all the factors that we're going to talk about and we're also developing a range of policies that actually fit under those. Now, many of them are things that people all, that already exist, such as paying the real living wage. That's something. So you've got the CBI, which is a business organization that, that Business of Scotland that had quite a few fights with in 2014. You may remember they, they ended up losing half their membership, et cetera, because they were campaigning illegally, et cetera. They're in trouble again. I remember sitting in a, in a Westminster uh, meeting and actually hearing the head of the CBI in Scotland, no, head of CBI in England, actually saying, we need to reduce the minimum wage in order to make my members more competitive because of Brexit. And I was like, no, we need to increase it in order to make us more competitive because of Brexit. And so basically, we're just talking about the same things that we talked about before, but with more solid answers and better policies and better vision behind it. Now, you might say, ah, but sustainability is in there and the recycling scheme isn't very popular in the marine protected areas, etc. I happen to think that there is general, un general belief and understanding that increase getting recycling right is something we absolutely need to do. Uh, and that's within the policy of a well-being economy is getting that right. Whether the SNP are getting it right or not, they're not. And they've maybe not understood that absolutely everything they do that's contentious is going to be uh, rejected if they can at all reject it by Westminster. But yeah, that's basically it. Instead of GDP, instead of, let's look at the stock markets. We don't do that so much now, but growing up, we used to look at the news and it would say, oh, the stock markets is doing this, the FTSE is doing this. And, well, you know, of the 16 million people that used to watch the news back then, about 200 people cared about that. Yeah. Did anyone ever go, FTSE's up 50 points? Yes. No, we didn't really make any difference to anybody, right? And and so no, I understand. I'm not. I'm not dismissing it. I understand the the importance to to the financial sector, etc. But that's it. We were we we were putting the financial sector, especially from Margaret Thatcher's days onwards, on a pedestal, um, and we've come to regret that. I think. So what we're talking about is manufacturing cooperatives, worker-owned cooperatives. We're talking about increasing these, not them taking over. Not like a revolution. Uh, we're talking about uh, community heating schemes. We're talking about the real living wage. We're talking about eradicating poverty. We're talking about using taxation, as I talked about in the well-being, the well-being uh, cooperation tax, 
is actually using taxation, not specifically just to raise funds, but to change the behaviors so that it feeds back in. And I want to sort of like, you know, a key thing is, is that this image that I'm going to show you now. Um, this is the symbol we've come up with for the well-being economy. And it's that statement that you can't have a strong economy without a strong society. This is the, the uh, Gallic symbol for, or Celtic symbol for uh, infinity. And so basically what, what I thought this said to me was that the economy and society are one. And that's the key message there. Um, and if you get that message across to people, because it's a core belief, because these policies match core beliefs, they don't go, how does that work? You know, how do you set up a central bank? You know, the question we used to get, put you in the back foot, et cetera. They don't go, oh, I don't know how this works. You need to explain this to me. How many civil servants are we going to have and how big are the desks and what computers? How much is each computer going to cost? Are they going to have mouse? Is it going to wire mouse? We need to know the details of independence because we don't know. We just actually say, look, here's the general principle. Here's some of the policies. Look, they're doing it already. You support that, don't you? Do you want to live in that type of Scotland? Totally different conversation on the streets. And we'll be launching a new ambassador program, teaching people how to have these conversations uh, within a matter of weeks. Make that months, because uh, it's more technical than, than it used to be, because it's all going to be online. Thanks, Gordon. And, and again, you're saying this is very clear. This appeals to, I think, to all of us, what you've just described. And it was interesting to see we go from 48% to 55 to 60% if we get the message from the yes campaign or the government, the government agrees with you with what you're saying. Why do we not hear that from the government directly or, or do we hear enough of it? Or? Well, I think we do. I mean, for, for a start, in 2015, Business for Scotland had its AGM and we, the first thing we passed unanimously uh, was that all Business for Scotland members should pay the, the, the real living wage. The second thing was which the Scottish government should appoint an independence minister. Um, and we took that and went to the SNP and they went, don't be daft, we can't do that. And this new administration has just done it. And we were like, wow, you know, we're taken aback. The economy minister, Hamza phoned me up uh, at the beginning of the, and so did Kate, the, uh, at the beginning of the, uh, the, the leadership contest for the SNP. And I gave them both the same data. Kate never talked about it. She actually talked about the Sustainable Growth Commission because she was one of the authors of it. Hamza made his entire campaign about the wellbeing approach. Right. Uh, he actually mentioned business for Scotland and believe in Scotland in six different hostings that I watched. I don't know if he did it in all of them, uh, including one time leading a round of applause for us. And I thought, OK, at last we've got a relationship with uh, a political party once in one. I thought we we're going to have a relationship with a political party that is going to be slightly different from the one before, uh, which, you know, many people have said that the SNP did not do not play well with people within the independence movement. Well, I have been the leader for many years of the biggest and most active of the independence movements. Do you think that it was any different for me? If anything, it was worse. Now everything's changed. I'm through in Edinburgh every week to meet ministers and special advisors, etc. They're asking the questions, they're challenging our research, they're doing their own research. They seem to be fully committed to this. And we have a relationship with them. I've now met more ministers and leadership figures within the SNP since Humza was elected than I did in the previous four years. So it's, they are engaging on a different level, completely different level. So yeah, I think you're going to start hearing a lot more about this. Obviously in the background, he's dealing with some stuff. He didn't get a honeymoon period. Yeah, um, but that's, I think you're going to hear an awful lot more in a not too distant future, especially with Neil in the wellbeing economy. That was excellent, Gordon.
thoroughly enjoyed this. The balance for me uh, on this, this is great, but the questions we're going to be asked, people are being spoon-fed daily how bad the economy in Scotland is. Kate Forbes, one thing I was very impressed with, I think it was the first hustings, she actually said, what we've got to do is put the GDP figures together, including the potential that we have in green energy. Keep it not, mm -hmm. you know, out of the ballpark, keep it uh, modest. Yeah. I believe you've done an exercise on this, but that's, we've got to be able to say to people that an independent Scotland, no matter what they say, what the media say, what the establishment in England says about us, is the potential's huge. And from that base, if you look at Norway, top of that list, and their economy, we know why their economy is strong, but Scotland potentially can be up there. And that, that will help to consolidate that 60%. It doesn't necessarily mean at the moment that people are committed to going for it. If they cannot believe that we can sustain that, fund it, in other words, so, but no, it's good, good observation. So, so, so basically, yeah, you are right. Scotland will be the wealthiest and most advanced nation ever to win its independence uh, from a larger country. And every other one, uh, almost without exception, has thrived and not wanted to go back. So why would it be so hard for us? We have uh, our own, to a certain extent, our own tax system. We have our own benefit system. We have our own NHS, our own education system, our own legal system. We have a parliament. We've got almost everything that nobody else had. The only few, we've only a few things we need to build, such as a central bank. And people were going, oh, "How do you do that?" Well, lots of countries have done it in like, you know, twenty-eight days. They've launched their own currency, all that sort of thing. So people say, "Gordon, why don't you write a big long report about how to set up a central bank?" And I think because I like life too much. But I'll t I know what I would do already. I've even got the names of one or two people I would phone up and say, you've, you've headed up the Central Bank of India. You've headed up the Central Bank of, of, of Great Britain. How about you come and join us and help us put a central bank together? How much money do you want for it? Well, it's not going to be that much, is it, compared to, to the benefits to the economy? You know, so, so we've just got to stop and going in the back foot about if every other country in the world can set up a central bank, and let's just assume we can and just tell people, look, it's not going to be a problem. Let's talk about the vision we've got for a better country. As for GDP, et cetera, um, I don't know how we know what our GDP is uh, because the formula for GDP involves exports minus imports, and I don't believe we've got any credible way of actually measuring imports versus minus uh, uh, exports minus imports, um, etc. So we've got a rough guess at a lot of these figures, but we've got that rough guess and that rough guess says, and, and by the way, the rough guess was is based on a calculation which is done as part of the UK and therefore it will understate what our GDP is. Um, but our GDP growth uh, in the last 12 months has been 400% uh, higher than the UK's. Um, our economy is fundamentally stronger. Uh, it's been stripped back to the bone over and over again, massively underinvested in, uh, in Scotland. Uh, and yet, because we're naturally wealthier, one of the most naturally wealthy countries in, uh, in Europe, only Norway can match us in terms of natural wealth, uh, our economy has shown to be incredibly resilient. When you look at the uh, taxation coming in, especially from oil prices that rose last year, uh, expect, and I haven't seen the figures and I don't know, but I'm just back of an envelope sort of calculation here. I suspect our deficit will be significantly smaller than the rest of the UK's financial deficit this year, right? The issue is that, and we've done some work on 
and lobbied for the Scottish Government to put out a separate JARS account for a projection. So we put the, the wellbeing economy plan together, figure out what will happen to the economy if we were to implement all of this. And every single policy and a wellbeing policy is in use somewhere in the world as a smorgasbord. You can take these together. So they've even been measured. So we know the input of them, uh, the outputs from them all. So we can put them all together, calculate the outputs and actually make a, a, a forecast. And if the Scottish government does that, it will have the same weight as JERS and the economic argument is finished in our favour, which is what it should be. That's what we'd like to see. There are various difficulties and the Scottish government's still working on uh, how it might actually do that. But if they don't do it, we will. Thank you. Two questions, if you don't mind. Many people here have heard me say that I'm a very proud new Scot. So that's the first question is there is still a lot of new Scots that don't understand, don't believe in independence. We've been out in stalls quite often and some of them don't even know they can vote. So that, that's one of my, my, my missions or I feel it's one of my missions is make them understand that they can vote. So first question is, how do you think we can turn new Scots, uh, not turn, is convince them that independence is the way forward? Not me, obviously, I'm not a typical network. The second question is, there's two councillors here, there's more online. We deal with people every day and we get everything you can imagine. Why doesn't the council do this? Or oh, we don't have the budget, but that Scottish government, you know, you, you know you, I think you can understand where the message comes, which because we still get too much money from the UK and they don't understand the, the, um, the limitations. So I was going to ask you for some help. How do we as councillors, local elected members, when we talk to people, because we talk to them every yep. single day, make them understand that independence is the way forward. Okay, so uh, first of all, in terms of new Scots, these figures that I've shown you tonight, where we get to 60% uh, overall, uh, that's for everyone living in Scotland. Uh, I can break that down from, uh, from memory. Uh, new Scottish people are, I think, I was gonna say 72% for European born, if you know, in that poll there. Um, what's also interesting is that when the Scotland gets to 60%, English-born gets to 54%, yes. There's a majority of English votes for yes with the wellbeing economy. Every single group, uh, the only group that was no was Welsh people, and I think we only managed to survey three of them. Um, so we can't, we can't say that's a... Uh, and, and Northern Irish was pretty close as well, funnily enough. Um, so, yeah... Um, but in 2014, an awful lot of EU citizens didn't vote, even though they were allowed to. Either some of them thought it wasn't their business, etc. And also a lot of them thought, well, I don't want to leave the EU. That has changed. Uh, EU citizens will vote if they get a chance to vote. Now, there's an issue here, which is that uh, there is not going to be a referendum unless independence hits 60% and the UK government realises the writing's on the wall and it better negotiate and negotiate fast. In which case there might be a referendum. We can't get to 60% unless we put this in place and unless we start a campaign. We're not going to start a campaign unless the SNP decides in October to go for a Scottish independence election. I've dropped the word de facto. I uh, don't like that at all. Uh, but a Scottish independence election in 24. However, I believe that EU citizens can't vote in that. Yeah, which is a bit of an issue. And also 16 and 17 year olds can't either. You might think that's a problem. This poll we did, uh, 2006 people, in February, it was 
I said to uh, panel base, remove all 16 to 17 year olds, because there was a, a representative sample of 16, 17 year olds and a representative sample of EU people in that. I said, remove those two groups who can't vote and tell me what it is. And he came back and he said, it's 48% yes. I said, how's that happen? He said, well, it's less than 1%. And instead of rounding down, it now rounds up to 48%. So it makes less than 1% difference uh, for Westminster. What is a bigger difference is if you were to do it in Holyrood, Holyrood has an electoral system designed to stop you getting a majority. Westminster has a system designed to give a majority to people whose votes are spread like the SNP. 1% doesn't flip it at all. There's no, there's no advantage. However, right, I would love to take a video camera and point it at you and say, you're a hardworking local council in Edinburgh. Why do you support independence? And then you say, but I'm not allowed to vote, even though I live here, my family's here, etc. And I'll tell you, I'll give you more than 1% back from people watching those videos. Point them at young people saying it's our future. Why are we not allowed to vote? Right? So that's the first part of the question. The second part of the question uh, was, yeah, in terms of th this would take too long to go into detail of uh, in terms of uh, budget, etc. But if you've heard, and there's a misnomer, the Barnett formula is something that we're told you get a, the Chancellor sets a budget for England. These are the policies. This is how much it costs to deliver in England. You then get a population percentage share of that for the devolved nations, plus a little bonus, a little bit extra. Well, it's not a little bit extra. There's two reasons for that. First of all, the economic strategy of actually investing in London over the years has taken all the wealth, the opportunity, the factories and everything out of the devolved nations and actually really pared our economies back. Secondly, the Barnett formula was never to give us extra. It was to basically when Scotland was a blanket of labour uh, MPs, the Barnett formula was brought in because they had so much power they were actually spending all the taxes raised in Scotland in Scotland. Um, not quite sure what on, but they were spending the money raised in Scotland in Scotland, and they wanted to say, no, you can't have that. We need that money down south. But I'll tell you what, we'll give you this Barnet formula to compensate a little bit. You'll always be given a little bit extra. And they went, oh, okay. It was a terrible deal. Basically, the Barnet formula is compensation for the fact that we have a bigger GDP and actually genuinely bigger tax and bigger exports, etc., than the rest of the UK does. And therefore, it's compensation for subsidising the rest of the UK. But it was given to all the nations. And the reason that you hear people like the Tory, uh, M, I can't remember which one it was, Tory MP uh, last year that was saying, oh, we need to scrap the Barnet formula, is because they realise that, that they now think it's them subsidising us, it's not. So basically, when we put... Uh, the model in place for this and talk about the revenues we'll have and talk about the policies we'll have people will stop saying to you uh they, they will realize you get a jurors for the uk uk jurors the problem becomes the title uk jurors and then you've got independence jurors people will say not why you say because we're in the uk look at what we can have this is the proper model brought out by the scottish government as I say, it's more complicated than that. And getting the Scottish government to agree to do this, even though I've done it twice, personnel has changed twice. And I now need to go through the whole process again because it is, I don't know, it shouldn't be a big thing, but it's a big thing. Yeah, we've got a question from an online participant, Leslie Stark, and she's asking, like most of us tonight, she's an activist when she's out on the street um, campaigning. She's being asked uh, about the well-being economy economy and the well-being approach. Can you sum it up in a few sentences to emphasize the difference between the economy now and a well-being economy that we can 
arguments that we can use um, on our stalls and in street campaigning. Yeah, it's it's pretty much yeah. Uh, uh, basically, the difference is, and I don't want to say that the that the UK government makes every single decision it makes based on can we boost the GDP. It doesn't. Uh, they'd be they'd be kicked out very quickly if they did. But it has become a kind of religion. It has become the core driving factor of all decision making is how do we increase the economy and even it's got to the point where uh, George Stephanopoulos that said to Clinton it's the economy stupid and ever since everyone's thought you have to campaign on the economy well we are campaigning on the economy we're campaigning on a better way to do the economy because the economy that people were talking about then collapsed in 2007 and instead of small government and no intervention, they've had the biggest intervention in history. And has it worked? Has it refired everything back up again? No, it's like a zombie economy. Wages haven't risen, but now inflation's rising. And so there's, there's lots of strikes, etc. The core of the whole thing, there's two statements. And that is that a, a well-being economy is one where quality of life, equality, fairness, happiness, environmental sustainability and health are all economic outcomes that are given the same weight as GDP. As I say, that's a core belief of, of the vast majority of the population. The second statement is that one that I've said before, which is that you can't have a strong society without a strong economy. You can't have a strong economy without a strong society. They are completely interlinked. And if you try to swing the pendulum from left to right and sort out each problems of society and economy separately, then you get into this boom and bust cycle and it just doesn't work. You're always on the back foot, always trying to get yourself out of trouble, as opposed to creating a sustainable, natural environment for society and the economy to work in unison. And that's the difference between a well-being approach. You always ask yourself, are we doing the right thing, not are we trying, are we doing something that will raise GDP? Because we all know that it doesn't trickle down. Wealth doesn't trickle down. You see, a rising tide lifts all boats. Well, it does if it's a boat in a harbour, but that's just too simple an analogy. It's a much more complex thing. The economy is much more complex than most people think it is, and that's why so many of the leading economists, of the economists that are coming to the fore in the world now are interested in well-being, but they're also behaviorists. Instead of looking at spreadsheets and trying to, to think about numbers and what happens with currencies, et cetera, et cetera, they're thinking, how do people behave? Because the problem with economics has always been, and as an economics student, I was taught uh, that there was no other way than neoclassical economics. And I believed that for quite some time. Uh, and it was only when I when I got real life experience and working as an economist in national economic planning for the uh, Scottish enterprise that I started to realize that almost everything I've been told about economics did not work. We all believe that. We all know that in our core that the economy hasn't worked since 2007. Every economist in the world will tell you it hasn't, but we've got a plan to get it back. What are you going to do? Well, the Tories are saying we're going to deregulate the banks. We think the problem with the banking crash was there was too much regulation. Liam Fox has been saying that, yeah? And the whole world has moved right since then. Because all the left has been able to do is go, let's go back to socialism. People started talking about Marxism again. Those are last century's ideas. This is this century's idea. That's how you sell it to people. Hi, Gordon. That was fantastic. And I know most people I know would think that the well-being economy was a great thing as well. But what do you think is going to happen 
when the people try to counter it, so the, the people against independence, when the press, when the Tory government come along and try to rubbish it, what are they going to say about it that, that won't make people <coughs> wobble and think, oh, maybe it is a bit too difficult? Well, the, the thing is that, that if, you, if you say, well, if you say we're going to go down the Venezuelan uh, communism route and then the press all turn on it, well, they've got examples of where it hasn't worked. They've got a, it doesn't fit with the core belief system of the electorate. They believe the headlines. Yeah. If you talk about well-being economics, well, like I say, although no one has actually taken a well-being economic approach to find it and applied it, and, but people are all over the world implementing the various parts of it. And so it's a smorgasbord. And you can always just go, first of all, it works there. It works in Sweden. That works in Wales. This is working in New Zealand. That's working in Finland. It's working in Denmark, right? You can say that participatory budgeting is working in France. Community heating systems are working in Denmark. And it's like 50, 60% more, more efficient than everyone having your own boilers, etc. You can, you can talk about uh, Ireland cycle paths and how successful they are. In Glasgow, 2,000 cycle trips uh, a day before lockdown, that figure comes from. So it's probably increased quite a bit since then. Uh, whereas you were at 24, 25,000 in Dublin. Same weather, you know? So you can say, but it works here and it works there. So there's the first thing. Secondly, uh, if you think about what I've just explained to you there, does the Daily Record, does the Sun, does the Mirror oppose what I've just said? No. Does the Telegraph? Yeah, but it just went bust. And nobody buys it in Scotland anyway. So <laughs> a bit of Sharon Freud there, um, like the EU element to the vote, to the joke. And so, basic, so basically, this does not get attacked in the way that we'll just have the same economic policies as the Tories do in London, but we'll do it in Scotland, which is kind of a lot of what's in the Royal Commission and even, even a lot of what was said last time, Randall, nothing will change. Yeah, I'm, I'm, everything will change. Uh, the, the final thing I want to say is that when people say to you, and this comes from your question here, is it going to be difficult? Is it going to be a difficult transition towards a, a better well-being-led Scotland? Well, the answer is no, because right now, every single decision made in Westminster, which affects Scotland, which is almost all of them, are made for the benefit of the people of London and the South East. And that's not wrong, because everybody lives there. Like the vast majority live there. If you want to win an election, you have to please them. This is democracy. It's just the populations make a democratic deficit in Scotland. After independence, every single decision made in Scotland were made for the benefit of Scotland, its people, our communities, and our businesses, and our environment. And therefore, it's a mathematical impossibility that it's going to be hard or worse. From day one, every decision we make is better, it's going to be easy. And that's what I want to sell to people. We make the right decisions, we'll improve Scotland, create a better nation, a well-being nation, which is a member of the EU. Thank you very much. And that was Gordon McIntyre Kemp, uh, courtesy of the group Yes for EU. Some very impressive polling numbers there, I think you'll agree. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll be back again next Friday with another episode of Scottish Independence Podcasts. Bye now. Mm-hmm.